You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today on the Sexual Wellness Sessions, we are talking to the amazing Justin Miller all about fantasies. One of the things I find completely fascinating about the topic of sexual fantasies is that we fantasize about everything else in our lives, the houses we want to live in, where we want to live, how many children we want to have, the career we want to have, how much money we want to earn, what we're going to eat for lunch. And sexual fantasies seem to have such a different conversational space and we think about them so differently. And so Justin, the question I wanted to kick off with is, are they that different? (laughs) Well, it's true that we fantasize about a wide range of things in our lives, both sexual and non-sexual. But something that makes the fantasies about sex pretty unique is that there's a lot of uncertainty about them in terms of whether they're normal. And there's also a lot of shame and guilt and embarrassment that goes along with them as well. So there's a lot that we need to do when it comes to sexual fantasies, because almost everyone has them, to to try and normalize them and get people more comfortable with their fantasies, because I think we're missing out on a lot by kind of cordoning them off and keeping them private and hidden even from our own partners. Mm, That's so interesting. And I think we seem to make assumptions about what people's fantasies might mean to them or what it might mean about that person. And I guess for me, I kind of think that fantasy is a way that we explore almost anything. So why would it mean anything different about us as a person if we were fantasizing about something sexually than if we were fantasizing about anything else? And I think there's a lot of truth to that. It is also the case that our fantasies do tend to say something about us because our fantasies are this unique product of our personalities, our sexual histories, our evolutionary background, our culture and society. All of these things come together to influence and shape our fantasies in a certain way. But fantasies in and of themselves don't always have a deeper meaning. For example, sometimes people just have very active imaginations. And the fact that they're fantasizing about something that might be really kinky or really taboo doesn't mean anything other than that they just like to think a lot. And that's another important point to make as well, is that fantasy and desire, while they sometimes overlap, they are distinct concepts. So just because you fantasize about something doesn't necessarily mean that you want to act on it or do it in your real life. So we always need to be careful when we're looking at fantasies to not always assume that there's a deeper meaning and to not always assume that it reflects a desire or want. And so do you think that one of the things that is problematic for people when they think about fantasies is how they think other people would think about them because of their fantasies rather than perhaps how they feel about those fantasies themselves. Absolutely. And that's a big part of the concern that many of us have when it comes to sharing our fantasies with our partners is that we're worried about being judged or shamed for the things that turn us on. And so that hesitancy 
really leads a lot of people to just hold back and keep their fantasies completely private. But in doing so, we're actually missing out on a lot in our sex lives because I find that the people who are sharing their fantasies and those who are acting on them are reporting the most satisfying sex lives, the fewest sexual problems, and the happiest relationships. So there are a lot of potential benefits that we can tap into by getting in touch with those fantasies, but a lot of us let that fear and those feelings of shame hold us back. Mm. And, and why do you think that is? Why do you think that those people have more satisfactory sex lives? So with our sexual fantasies, a lot of us feel this shame and guilt about them. And when people have those sorts of feelings, it can interfere with their sexual performance and, and functioning. And it can also inhibit desire because then sex becomes something that where they're not really getting their needs met and they're not really doing what it is that they want to be doing. So that's one way that holding back on our fantasies can potentially impair sexual performance. But also the process of sharing fantasies with a partner is something that can bring you closer because it can help to build up feelings of trust and intimacy because you're sharing this very deep, very intimate aspect of yourself with someone else. And fantasies, when we share them and express them, can also enhance sexual excitement because they're introducing an element of novelty and newness into one's sex life. And that's where just sharing the fantasies can be really useful as they can be this form of dirty talk that is, is exciting in and of itself. You don't necessarily have to go the extra mile and act on your fantasies in order to be satisfied. But I, I do see that people who are acting on their fantasies are reporting pretty positive experiences and saying that it brought them closer to their partner and it either met or exceeded their expectations. So fantasy and reality, it seems, um, you know, they, they do overlap and, and the reality of acting out of fantasy often lives up to what we have in our heads, but certainly not always. I wonder if people who are able to communicate their fantasies to their partners. A, I suppose it's a, a kind of a more vulnerable space or a more intimate space for couples. And so it can take their relationship to a new dimension or in, add a new dynamic. But also it's the ability to communicate, which you know I, every single sexual and relationship expert that I know would say is one of the most important ingredients of a good sex life. And I suppose it demonstrates some form of being able to communicate about sex or at least to take the risk and put yourself out there and try. Definitely. And when we are, are sharing our fantasies, you know, this is part of the self-disclosure process, which we know is so important and so essential to building intimacy in relationships. The people who are communicating more just about sex in general tend to be more sexually satisfied because if the, you can tell somebody about your fantasies, you can probably also tell them what feels good and you can ask them what it is that they want. And by having those open lines of communication, it just creates all of these opportunities for sexual fulfillment that you can't have when you just clam up when it comes to sex. And really our partners can't know what's going on in our head unless we communicate it because we know as um, professionals who work with couples that one of the biggest pitfalls of couples communication is mind reading or assuming that you know what's going on in your partner's head and actually when it comes to sex being able to 
be more directive or more open or more informative to each other is really helpful because all people are different. What they like is different. Our desires are different. There is such a range of sexuality and sexual experiences that we can't all expect to be the same. Yeah, and it's generally not a good idea to expect that your partner is just going to know everything about you and what turns you on and what you do like and what you don't like. That's where the communication is just so essential because when we ask our partners to be mind readers, (laughs) there's a good chance they're just not going to guess correctly. So I think it's good to try and take that uncertainty out of the equation and be more forthright and direct about what it is that you want, and also to listen to your partner when they're expressing to you what it is that they want, because this is a two-way street or a multi-way street if you're in a polyamorous or open relationship, but more communication is generally always better. And it would be so boring if we all knew what each other wanted all the time. <laughs> if we if we were all perfectly aligned, and then curiosity would just completely fizzle out, and I think It would be so boring to know everything about our partners and not have anything left to discover. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And when it comes to sexual fantasies, and I know this is something that you have um, talked about in relation to your research and your experience of, your extensive experience of writing about the subject, is there are going to be risks and rewards of acting out any fantasies, I suppose. So taking fantasies into reality and I guess I wanted to explore what some of those might be I guess the one that would immediately come to mind for me is fantasies are completely tailored to us they are completely personalized we are completely in control but how translating that into reality would be quite a challenge because we have the interference of other people involved or the uncertainty or the unpredictability of um, other people involved but in itself that acting out a fantasy could be quite disappointing because it might not match up to our expectations. And certainly that is a risk. As I said, though, most people who have acted out their favorite fantasy report positive experiences, but there is a subset of them who say that it just didn't live up to their expectations. And part of the reason for that is just because we are losing that control because when it takes place in your head, you've got the whole script down and you can direct and dictate exactly where it goes. But when you're bringing another person or multiple people into the mix, there's this certain amount of uncertainty that's present. And one of the cases where we see that oftentimes is in a group sex or or threesome encounter. I found that those were the fantasies that while they were actually the most popular fantasies out there, they were the fantasies that were least likely to turn out well when people acted on them. And I think it's because when people actually get into that situation, they don't know who's supposed to do what with whom and when. And there are also certain emotions that we can't necessarily predict until we're in that situation. So we might think, oh, a threesome sounds great, and I'll do this with my partner and everyone's going to have a good time. But then when they get into that situation and they see their partner getting sexual attention from somebody else, or if the threesome becomes a twosome, then suddenly you might start to feel very jealous or insecure. So this is what we call in psychology an affective forecasting error, where we try to predict how we're going to feel in this future situation. But it turns out that we're often wrong because there's all these unaccounted for factors that we can't visualize in our head until we're actually in that situation. Mm. And that's because humans are unpredictable emotional beings. We can never predict 
everything that we're going to do because we are impacted by our context, our emotions, our feelings, our headspace at the time, the kind of day we've had, how much sleep we've had, the weather. <laughs> I suppose that we can never accurately predict exactly what's going to happen. But I suppose um, I was interested in the fact that you said that in your research, you found that most people who acted on those fantasies found it satisfactory or were, were satisfied with what happened. I suppose actually it doesn't need to exactly map on to exactly how they imagined it for it to be satisfactory or be enjoyable. Well, I think part of that is you have to go in when you're acting on a fantasy with realistic expectations. And this is where a fantasy can potentially turn out disappointing when you act on it, is if you go in with these really sky-high expectations and you attempt to do this thing that you've never done before, it might not live up to the fantasy that you had. Um, and, and so I think it's important to lower those expectations, especially in the beginning, because sometimes it takes a little bit of practice to perfect a fantasy before it turns out the way that, that you really want it to. And there's another part of this where you just kind of need to establish the right communication with your partner and where maybe coming up with a safe word together can be really useful because if you don't have all of this communication beforehand and you're not really good at communicating about it during the act, that increases the chances of things going sideways and not living up to your expectations. So it's really important to have that communication beforehand, during the act, and then also afterwards because if the experience doesn't go well or it doesn't turn out quite the way that you want it to, you can make adjustments for the next time. And try and perfect that experience and make it better for everyone involved. Mm. And does your research show that people do, once they've acted out a fantasy once, tend to kind of go back to the well, tend to repeat those experiences or be more open to taking more fantasies into reality? So that's something that I'm not able to address based on my current work because I really need to have a longitudinal study that explores exactly what happens when people act on a fantasy and how it affects their sex life going forward. It's possible that once somebody acts on a fantasy and they have that experience, maybe they fantasize about it less because it's no longer this novelty or, or you know, element of newness. And But at the same time, it's also possible that some people might start fantasizing about it even more because it was such a great experience and they want to mentally relive it. And so I, that's where we really need the longitudinal studies to know what happens and who experiences different effects. But the difficulty with that type of work is that there's basically no funding for it. So it's really hard to you know, get people over a long period of time to repeatedly report on their sexual fantasies if you can't pay them. And we just really lack funding for sex research, especially in the United States where I'm based, unless you're studying STDs or things that have really important public health outcomes. Mm. When we're thinking about fantasies, I suppose you were saying that there are some kind of more common fantasies and some kind of rarer ones. But I suppose before we go into that, I guess I'd always focus more, I think the conversation always focuses more on the idea of fantasies being about something that you haven't done. But actually what you just made me think of there when you were explaining that was we can often fantasize about things that have happened before or go back to reliving experiences that we've had before. And so fantasies might actually be something quite safe and familiar for some people. And for some people that might be more important 
than others because people differ in their need for novelty and excitement and also in their need for stability and security. So I I would predict that for people who are very high in, say, sensation-seeking personality traits, they might be more likely to have just new and different fantasies all the time. And maybe when they've acted on one, they switch to something else. But for somebody who is, say, very high in neuroticism, who doesn't deal well with stress, maybe going back to the familiar or something that is comforting would be the type of thing that they'd be likely to fantasize about over and over again, even if they've already acted on it. Again, we need the the long-term studies to know whether that's the case, but I I think there's probably something to that idea. Mm. And I think that for some people leaning on fantasy is actually something that helps them or can be a crutch for when they're struggling sexually or struggling with sexual experiences. And I certainly know through my conversations with people as a psychosexologist, as a therapist, that people will say, you know, the difficulty is that I find myself fantasizing instead of focusing on being on the moment during sex. And that's because I'm worried about losing my erection or I'm worried about not being able to satisfy my partner or I'm worried about becoming less aroused. And so what they do is they lean on fantasy as a way to maintain arousal and maintain desire. And they don't always necessarily like it, but it becomes a strategy that they've put in place to help them sexually. And we definitely see that the most common scenarios where people are fantasizing is either during masturbation or during partnered sex. And so people are really using that mental imagery as a way to focus and to become aroused or to stay aroused and to reach orgasm. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. This is just a very common phenomenon. But I think a big part of the reason why we do this is because many of us find that we're easily distracted during sex or we have a lot of sexual anxieties or we're insecure about our bodies. And so if we don't have that mental imagery to focus on, our mind is going to wander in other directions in ways that are going to negatively impact our sexual performance. So it's okay to use fantasies to maintain that arousal and to have a satisfactory experience. But there are other ways that you can achieve the same goal that don't necessarily involve relying on fantasy. One example would be to practice mindfulness techniques, which really allow you to learn to be in the moment and focus on the physical sensations rather than getting lost in your head. So that's something that somebody could try if they didn't want to rely on fantasies quite as much. Mm. And I think it's a it's a really interesting discussion to have because I think so many people worry that if they took the fantasy part away or that they would struggle more sexually and so it becomes their comfort zone but actually then what they struggle with is being in the moment with their partner and as you said mindfulness sex techniques mindfulness techniques can be really helpful for people there but again it's the leap of faith that comes with being like okay I'm just going to give myself permission to not fantasize and also I think people build up habits around sex very easily in my experience so Um, the idea of, okay, well, we're going to have to start kind of moving into the sexual space now. And so that means that with that comes the accompanying space in my head that I go to. Yeah. And it's very true that people will tend to fall into routines and have these very learned patterns of behavior when it comes to sex. And I think very early on, you know, 
people start fantasizing at a young age and we, we get used to this idea that we kind of need our fantasies. And that helps to explain why they're so common during partnered sex. But again, it's nothing to be shameful of or worried about. And I know a lot of people are concerned, for example, that if they're fantasizing about somebody else while they're having sex with their partner, they feel like there must be something wrong with them. But that actually is a surprisingly common thing. And it doesn't mean that you don't love your partner or that there's a problem in the relationship or that there's something wrong with you. So if you happen to have that experience, don't get too hung up on it because, like I said, it's not inherently the sign of an underlying problem. I think that that's a really reassuring thing for people to hear because because we don't often have these conversations about sex, sexuality, these kind of subjects, people don't have a frame of reference. And so, so many people feel kind of isolated or alone in their experiences and they don't want to ask people. They don't want to ask other people what their experiences are like or talk it over at the pub with their friends because they are too worried about the judgment that comes with opening that kind of Pandora's box. Um, But you were talking about the most common fantasies and one of the most common fantasies being kind of group sex or threesomes. And I guess something I get asked about a lot is common fantasies around inappropriate people. And when I say inappropriate people, I mean my best friend's husband or my best friend's boyfriend or my boss or fantasizing about someone who I actually hate or that guy at work who I find really difficult or so I guess I would love to know what some of those other more common fantasies are because those are the ones that I feel like I get um, asked about a lot but I always think that the common link between um, something like fantasizing about someone that you for example really dislike is actually the opposite of hate isn't love it's ambivalence and so it's because it feels quite like emotionally charged, but I, I don't know if that's right at all. Yeah, I think all of those targets that you talked about, certainly they're common fantasies that emerged in my research. And I actually found that men were more likely than women to fantasize about those, should we say, inappropriate targets. Um, but I think the big common element among a lot of them is that it's taboo to fantasize about those people. And when we're told that we can't or shouldn't do something such as have sex with our partner's sibling or with our boss, right? Um, You know, when we're told we can't do something or there's this obstacle to attraction, that makes us want it even more. So I think that's helps to explain why some of those fantasies are so common. But when it comes to the fantasies about people we hate, I did see that that emerged in my research as well. And I think part of it is that that anger, that dislike is amplifying our sexual arousal. And we know from a mountain of research in social psychology that strong emotions can amplify sexual feelings. So I think that's probably part of what's going on there is that you kind of have this what we call excitation transfer, where you know you've been thinking about how much you just like this other person, and that gets your heart rate going, and um, you know creates this state of physiological arousal, and that, and if this person that you dislike is very physically attractive, and that is creating sexual arousal, you can see those two things coming together synergistically to create a heightened state of arousal because mm, they have quite a similar kind of physical, biochemical, physiological profile. Yep, in terms of the way it impacts the body, getting that heart rate going and so forth, and changing patterns of blood flow in the body as well. And I think that um, 
I I can completely understand that because I suppose if you were thinking about that person, you might think, God, why am I feeling that way? Why do they make me so kind of physically aroused? Why do I feel a bit hotter? Or why does my heartbeat kind of going faster? And it's, there is more, more kind of spark. I don't necessarily mean spark. I think I mean like charge in those relationships, whereas people were kind of ambivalent about or a bit neutral about. There isn't any, anything there, I suppose, to kind of, build upon either. And one of the other things that's going on in that case is probably what we call this misattribution of arousal, where when people are in a heightened state of physiological arousal and there's an attractive person around and our arousal is due to the situation that we're in, such as, you know, we've just done something exciting, like we've exercised, we've ridden a roller coaster. These types of things increase attraction to someone else because people are attributing their arousal from the situation to the attractive person. So there could be a a sort of parallel thing that's happening here with these people that we intensely dislike who are physically attractive is that we're misattributing those, those strong feelings that we have in our bodies to the other person and labeling that as sexual arousal. Mm, So it kind of might not be about them at all. It's just about context or about them kind of being in the right place at the right time it might be the case yep and I suppose it's I suppose that that taboo thing is like anything isn't it that kind of like hand in the cookie jar or like you know telling even when we tell children not to do something you know you turn your back for one minute and you see them kind of rush to do what you've told them not to do I think there's something instinctively more exciting or alluring about something that we know we're not meant to do yeah it's just it's Fun to be bad, I guess, is another way to to think about it. And, you know, people do this, they experience, this is what we call reactance in psychology, where when people's personal freedoms are threatened, they rebel by reasserting their autonomy and independence. So in both sexual and non-sexual situations, telling people not to do something is (laughs) counterproductive because it often leads them to want to do it even more. Mm. And we, we see that a lot, right? We kind of see it all the time. And I know it's it's often the thing that's depicted in films and series and in on TV, you know, we know that. And I suppose I wonder how much it feeds into stereotypes as well. You know, the idea of kind of women liking bad guys or bad men or, you know, that there's something in the that kind of messaging um, that I think feeds into those narratives. Absolutely. And it's it's just a very, very powerful part of what turns us on and what we're attracted to and, and drawn to. So, yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, I think our, our narratives, our sexual beliefs, you know, there's those stories that we hear about sex from childhood, you know, from really, really early doors. I think that in my experience anyway, and, you know, I talk to a lot of people about sex kind of all the time. I um, mean, you know, these are the kind of daily conversations that I have. But those those narratives are kind of invisible and we pick them up from the things that are said because of the things that are unsaid. But they can completely shape the sexual person that we become and the sexual experiences that we have. So I guess I think that it would be completely expected that they would also shape our fantasies. Yeah. And as I said, I think our fantasies are extraordinarily complex in terms of where they come from. And they are very much shaped by 
these early learning experiences that we have by what we're told from our parents and what we learn through religious teachings, through our culture, they say a lot about us and who we are and, and where we come from. And what are some of those kind of more common fantasies? I suppose we've touched upon a few one being the kind of group sex and threesome bit, one being kind of people we dislike or people that we know we're not meant to have sex with or sexual experiences with or we're not meant to fantasise about. Are there, are there any others? Yeah, beyond group sex and taboos, the other big fantasy themes are power and control. So the BDSM fantasies are very pervasive, as are the adventure and thrill-seeking types of fantasies where people are mixing it up and trying something new and different in bed, or maybe they're taking sex out of bed and having sex in a new location or setting. A couple of the other big themes would be the emotional fulfillment fantasies. Most commonly, this is where people just want to feel intensely desired. So the the very strong passion types of fantasies. And then lastly are the non-monogamy fantasies. So people imagining what it might be like to be polyamorous or to be a swinger. And also the... um, the fantasies about sort of pushing the boundaries of your gender role or your sexual identity. So for example, the heterosexual people who have same sex fantasies or cisgender people who fantasize about maybe cross-dressing or just doing something different with their gender role or expression. Mm. And I suppose that it's about exploration, isn't it? You know, this is as far, the, the mind has no limits. It is partially about exploration. It's partially about just mixing it up and trying something different. And again, with a lot of these fantasies, it's also about the taboo element to them. So for example, a gender-bending fantasy, part of what might be appealing to some people is that we have these very strong socially prescribed gender roles. And so violating them is a taboo. So there's, there's a lot of overlap between these categories and people can combine them in any number of ways. And in some of the follow-up research I've done on sexual fantasies, I find that most people's favorite fantasy spans a lot of different categories at the same time. So it might have a multi-partner element, a BDSM elements, a taboo elements. There might even be a gender bending element in there. You know, it's there are all different kinds of ways we can combine these things. And that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about our fantasies is that they're just so highly contextualized and can go off in any number of directions. Mm. So it's basically an imagination party. <laughs> More or less, yes. <laughs> um, and I would love kind of um, before we finish today to know what your kind of top practical tips or things to think about would be for people who are th- starting to think about taking their fantasies into reality or um, exploring the idea of acting out their fantasies and if there was a, a key message that you would that you would give people there are a few steps that I think are important and I think it begins with self-acceptance and by relieving a lot of those feelings of shame and guilt and that's something that I really try to do in the book tell me what you want I explain what the most common sexual fantasies are and help people to realize that they're not alone in having them and that you're probably not weird, strange, or unusual. So start by getting good with you. And then when it comes to sharing fantasies with a partner, it's all about starting low, going slow, and not getting your most adventurous and fantasies out there right away. Start at the more vanilla end of the spectrum 
and use that as an opportunity to just start building trust and intimacy because those components are essential for getting to the, let's say, more thrill-seeking side of things. And it's also about picking the right time and place for when you have these discussions about fantasies to ensure that you know, you're not doing it in a public setting where other people might overhear and that inhibits you from having a complete discussion about it. And, you know, maybe doing this when you're both in a heightened state of arousal, such as after watching a steamy movie. And the other thing to keep in mind is when you're sharing your fantasies with your partner, it's really important to validate them in the process because it's very easy when one partner brings up a fantasy to someone else for the recipient to think that, well, this means I'm insufficient or inadequate in some way, or I'm not satisfying them. So talk about how you think that they're really hot and sexy and you enjoy the sex that they're having. Um, But here's this thing that maybe we can try and here's why I think it'll be great for both of us. So validate them and let them know what they're getting out of this as well. And I think that there is something about the idea of inviting our partners into our fantasies. And I think so often, because I believe the, of the culture we have around sex and sexuality and this kind of unspoken and hidden sexual side of ourselves, is that we assume if our partners are suggesting something new, that it must be because we aren't enough in some way or what we're doing isn't enough in some way or they are missing out on something. And actually, so often it's just because we want to do something new with our partners and it's not a missing out of something more just a continuing to build or grow something and that's where i think yeah i think that's where we need to rethink fantasies and say you know just because someone fantasizes doesn't mean there's a problem and it's interesting when we sort of look at the history of the way fantasies were viewed in the field of psychology uh, sigmund freud actually wrote a long time ago in some of his famous writings that a happy person never fantasizes, only a dissatisfied one. And I think a lot of people today still kind of hold that view or something very similar to it, where they think that a fantasy is a sign of pathology or a lack of fulfillment or a problem. And the truth of the matter is that that's not the case at all. Most people fantasize and fantasies are usually the sign of a healthy and active sex life. So we need to change the, the narrative that we have around fantasies and um, I think normalize and accept them. And hopefully this conversation will play at least a small part in that. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully so. Now, I, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that, yes, sometimes fantasies are problems. And if somebody is fantasizing about, say, a non-consensual activity or an activity that would be extremely risky for their health or the health of someone else, and this is something that they think they're going to act on, that would be a time when it would be important to seek help. So, you know, there are cases where fantasies can be unhealthy, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, but the vast majority of the time, they're, they're nothing to worry about. And to finish up, I always ask all of my guests this at the end of the interviews is, what would your one tip for sexual wellness and well-being be? I know, <laughs> oh, it's impossible so, to choose so one. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think the single most important thing that I've learned through a lot of the work that I've done is that the key to maintaining an active and healthy sex life is 
to not fall into routines and to keep mixing it up and trying new things. We see that the people who do this, the couples who do this, are by far the most sexually satisfied. And that's just part of human nature is that we tend to reward with things that become routine when it comes to sex. And lots and lots of studies demonstrate this. For example, if somebody watches the same porn clip every day for a week, they show less arousal to it with each viewing. But if you show them a new clip with new performers and new activities, then their arousal skyrockets again. So that's an important thing to keep in mind for our sex lives is that we need to keep mixing it up, trying new things to maintain that arousal and excitement. And that can help us to keep the passion alive in our relationships. Amazing, perfect. Um, and I think, you know, that we see that in the rest of our lives, don't we? We learn incredibly quickly as humans. And it is a function of being human that we can retain information and we can learn and we do get used to things and we do adjust to our environments. And so, again, expecting it to be any different in sex would be str almost stranger. But unfortunately, when it comes to desire and arousal, those two things work against each other. So we need to put in the effort to, to keep things moving or keep things interesting. And it, it, it is very much possible to keep passion alive, but it's, it's one of those things that just requires a little bit of work. Justin, please could you tell everyone where they can find out more about you? You are the author of The Psychology of Human Sexuality and the amazing book, Tell Me What You Want. But is there anything else that you wanted to tell people? I run a blog called Sex in Psychology at sexandpsychology.com. And I provide regular updates on the latest and greatest sex research that is designed to both inform and entertain you at the same time. So if you check out my site, you can find links to all of my social media if you want to see what I'm up to when I'm not talking about sex. And if you want links to my books and speaking engagements and just everything else that I'm doing in the world of sex research. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts and if you have a moment, please leave us a review.